Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Postman Always Rings Twice, the original from 1946. The studio was MGM, the release date was May 2nd, 1946, the running time 113 minutes, and it was in black and white. The budget was $1.6 million, which is $21.2 million today, and the box office took in $3.7 million, that would be $49 million today. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guy gives it 4 out of 4 stars. His quick little synopsis is, John Garfield and Lana Turner ignite the screen in this bristling drama of lovers whose problems just begin when they do away with her husband, played by Cecil Kellaway. Despite complaints of changes in James M. Cain's original story, mostly for censorship purposes, the film packs a real punch and outshines the more explicit 1981 remake. Now, this film is often considered in the top 10 or even higher of the greatest film noir movies of all time, and I definitely agree. The story is actually nothing groundbreaking, especially by today's standards, but the acting, the beauty, and the chemistry of the two lead actors is really what sets the film apart. And as Malton mentioned, it is far superior to the 1981 remake with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange. And sure, you get more explicit scenes with the modern version, but sometimes less is more. So let's get into the main cast. You have Lana Turner, who plays Cora Smith. She was one of the most beautiful women in film history, and she had quite the career in Hollywood, along with controversies and seven marriages. Now, her birth name was Julia, but it was changed to Lana by the suggestion of director Mervyn Leroy. Prior to The Postman Always Rings Twice, her career started in 1937 and remained modest for most of the 30s. Turner began to get noticed in the 1940 musical Zigfield Girl with James Stewart. Her progression continued in the 1941 adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Spencer Tracy and Ingrid Bergman. As with many popular actresses of the era, Turner became the pinup girl during World War II for many of the soldiers in battle. The film that really turned her into a star was, of course, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and it also solidified her in the femme fatale role she would continue to act in for the next few years. Now, I won't get too much into her later career, but it definitely had its ups and downs with Turner suffering from depression and bankruptcy. But what made the most news was in 1958, when Turner's 14-year-old daughter Cheryl stabbed and killed Lana's then-boyfriend, the mobster, Johnny Stompantano, who was allegedly beating Lana at the time and many times prior to this incident. Now, the trial caused a frenzy in the media, though Lana and Cheryl were exonerated of any wrongdoing. However, as the old saying goes, any publicity is good publicity, and Turner's career actually thrived after the trial. John Garfield plays Frank Chambers. Now, Garfield epitomized the gritty, tough guy roles of the 1940s and was one of the top actors during that decade. He had a way of performing where he didn't seem like he was really reading the lines written for him. He sounded like he was naturally speaking. That's the best type of actor. His first role was the very well-acclaimed 1938's Four Daughters, and he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He continued to work steadily in film, but when the United States joined World War II in 1941, Garfield tried to enlist but was denied due to a heart condition. However, he would often go overseas for morale shows for the troops. 
Besides The Postman Always Rings Twice, Garfield's best-known films would be Body and Soul from 1947 and Humor-esque in 1946. But sadly, Garfield died of a heart attack in 1952 at the young age of 39. Now, part of the strain that he suffered was due to being called to testify during the Red Scare, and the McCarthy communism hearings were said to put unnecessary stress on Garfield, who already had enough strain with a weak heart. In the film, there are three other main characters, that is Cecil Kellaway, Hume Cronin, and Leon Ames, and they're all terrific. The director, Tay Garrett. Garrett was a respected director, but never considered in the upper echelon of film directors. This movie would be his crown jewel directing-wise in a career that began in 1928 and lasted until the early 1970s. He would predominantly be a television director in the 1950s. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So MGM was looking for another blonde bombshell type of actress in the mold of Jean Harlow. But because it was a different era of Hollywood after the Hayes Code was put into place, the studios couldn't make risque films like they did in the heyday of Jean Harlow in the 1930s. So MGM had to be creative with how Lana Turner was shot on screen. And this film made her a superstar. This was not the kind of film MGM was known for. They were known for their lighthearted musicals, not dark thrillers. MGM thought John Garfield was so perfect for the role that they actually borrowed him from Warner Brothers. The movie is based on a 1934 novel by James M. Cain, as Leonard Maltin mentioned. The first adaptation was a French movie made in 1939, and then there was an Italian adaptation in 1943. Alright, let's get into the movie. So the film opens... And, well, let me just let Frank Chambers, John Garfield, tell you. It was on a side road outside of Los Angeles. I was hitchhiking from San Francisco down to San Diego, I guess. A half hour earlier, I thumbed a ride. Well, so long, mister. Thanks for the ride, the three cigarettes, and... They're not laughing at my theories on life. But you broke off right in the middle of a sentence. Why do you keep looking for new places, new people, new ideas? Well, I never liked any job I ever had. Maybe the next one is the one I've always been looking for. Not worried about your future? Well, i got plenty of time for that. Besides, maybe my future starts right now. Well, good luck. Maybe I'll be seeing you again. Thanks for the ride, mister. you something, huh? Yeah, that's right, brother. I stick my head in the window and say real tough-like, parking in the middle of the highway, huh? Who do you think you are? He slipped me three little words. Three little words? Yeah. He says the district attorney. That's right, the old DA himself. He lives just down the road here a piece. Good morning, my friend. I'll tell you all about that job. All you got to do is to, you know, help around the place. Well, right now I got a certain trouble that keeps me from working. You look healthy. My feet. They keep itching for me to go places. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a nice place you got around here. How's the food? I'll make you a wonderful hamburger free of charge. Yeah? Just to show you the kind of food that goes with the job. 
Do you know anything about automobiles? Oh, I'm a born mechanic. Well, sit down. Of course, the job doesn't pay all the money in the world, you know. But you got no expenses. You eat and sleep right here. A fine bed, box, spring, and mattress. Fresh air, sunshine. <laughs> Boy, you'll be living. Suppose I try it for a couple of days. Yeah. Oh. Customer. Go ahead. We're not going to make any money in here. I'll look after the hamburger. Thanks. Don't go away. this okay now there are a few things i'll need to clue you into for one the latter part of the last scene is one of the most iconic in film history as john garfield slowly looks back after the lipstick rolls on the floor and the camera pans up to show the absolutely stunning lana turner in white shorts and a white top with her midriff showing She's also wearing a white turban wrap on her head. It's a beautifully shot scene, and then when you get to the close-up of Turner's face, the lighting is shot so perfectly and mysteriously, as was the standard for film noir. Even if you've never seen this movie before, you've almost certainly viewed this scene in cinema history highlight reels. Frank Chambers is a drifter who comes across a diner-slash-service station off a Los Angeles highway run by Nick Smith, played by Cecil Kellaway. That's who you heard trying to immediately offer Frank a job. The woman Frank sees is Nick's much younger wife, Cora. The man Frank hitched a ride from was the district attorney, Kyle Sackett, played by Leon Ames. Frank agrees to take a job as a mechanic in the service station. Cora is suspicious of Frank and tells Nick that they should just give him a week's salary and let him go. But Nick is just kind of a kind, happy-go-lucky sort of fellow who is too interested in the bills and other things to be bothered about Cora's worries. Cora decides to show Frank that she runs things around there and tells him to paint the chairs in the diner. Frank has sort of a sarcastic arrogance about him and decides after a few minutes of being browbeaten by Cora to just give her a kiss. Cora casually reapplies her lipstick and saunters off, and this is a foreshadowing of things to come. To punish Frank for his advances, Cora ignores Frank for a few weeks, not even acknowledging his presence. To get on Cora's good side, after a storm knocks out the main sign of the diner, Frank attempts to convince Nick about how to get a new modern sign that would bring in more customers. This is something Cora had been trying to get Nick to do for years. Nick seems to be more receptive to Frank's sales job and considers the idea. For a couple of weeks then, she wouldn't look at me or say a word to me if she could help it. I began to feel like a cheap nobody making a play for a girl that had no use for Oh, I disturbed her. I knew she hated me for that, worst of all. Customer wants this washed off. Needs hot water. 
Trying to figure a way to get that sign back. Well, don't bother. No bother. All I need is a stepladder. I don't want the sign put back, Mr. Busybody. Been trying to get a new sign for two years. Maybe there are some things you don't know how to sell. Oh, no. Hello there. You know, Frank, I've been thinking you must be in love. Hardly eat any lunch. She doesn't get any letters. I guess his best girl's got another fella. Too hot to eat. Funny climate you get around here. The harder the wind blows, the hotter it gets. Yeah, we call that wind the Santiana. It comes from the desert. Nick, why don't you let me take your car? I'll run that sign into town and get it fixed. Okay. Take it to the electric company. They did it for nothing last time. Well, sure, why not? They make a fortune out of it every month. Now you're talking like the neon sign salesman. I know, but a neon sign would only burn a quarter as much juice. But, Nick, that's not the point. It isn't? Well, no. What's the purpose of a sign around here? Show people where they can get something to eat, I suppose. <laughs> not for my money. A sign is supposed to give people an appetite. And your sign doesn't make me hungry. Yeah. Maybe you're right. <clears throat> but I'm too busy to talk about it now. He's hooked. I could sell anything to anybody. That's what you think. Tell me one thing. How did you ever come to marry a guy like that? Is that any of your business? Maybe. However, Frank uses this wind to again go overboard with his flirting with Cora, which actually turns her off, for now. Lana Turner is so perfect in the femme fatale role. Her body language and her facial expressions are the epitome of what the femme fatale role would become for years. Frank just can't figure out why Cora married Nick to begin with. He's many years older than her, and they seem completely mismatched. He's not even wealthy. So that night, Nick is celebrating his new neon sign and gets a bit drunk and plays his acoustic guitar. Nick kind of pushes Cora to dance a little bit, but she doesn't feel like it. However, Frank offers to dance with Cora, much to her dismay. The two dance a bit before Cora gets annoyed and stops. She decides she wants to drive to the beach and swim in the ocean. Nick decides not to go, but Frank joins her without even being invited. The two have an enjoyable time swimming in the ocean, and Cora seems to be warming up a bit to Frank. When they return to the diner, Nick thinks they are customers. Cora asks if he missed her while she was gone, but Nick is just sort of worried about his business. It's not that he's mean in any way, he's just kind of a harmless lunk. So Frank sees the sadness in Cora's eyes and again uses this as an opportunity to kiss her. This time, Cora decides to reciprocate his kiss. And then the fun begins. We find out the reasoning behind why Cora married Nick. Her whole life, Cora had been fighting off men because she was so beautiful. Finally, when an older gentleman came along that didn't want Cora simply because of the way she looked... The thought of a quiet married life seemed appealing. But she didn't take into account that she would end up being bored down the road. She even told Nick that she didn't love him. But he said that would come in time. However, now Frank just sparked a fire in Cora that she can't deny. The two decide to run off together. But Nick took the car on a business trip, so they decide to hitch a ride. Which doesn't happen. And then they end up walking miles down the highway. 
After resting a bit, Cora decides that she just can't leave and divorce Nick like this. She would lose everything she put into the business. She decides to head back to the diner, much to the frustration of Frank. Luckily, they both get back to the diner in time before Nick, because they needed to tear up the note, which said Cora was leaving him for Frank. In another scene of foreshadowing, Cora and Frank see Nick's car almost involved in a head-on collision with a large truck. Frank somewhat sarcastically says he wished Nick would get in a real wreck someday or drive off a cliff. Cora, shocked, says, well, he must not be serious. Frank says he's not really serious, but now the seed is planted. The reason that Nick was almost in an accident is because he was driving drunk. He was completely hammered. Okay, so now Frank is stuck. He knows he should just leave town, but he's hung up on Cora, who seems resigned in staying with Nick. Finally, one night, Cora goes to Frank's room. She asks Frank if he loves her, which of course he does. Well, as any good femme fatale, you can guess what she wants Frank to do. And that's right, the stunning blonde, who nobody can resist, wants the supposed strong-willed leading man to bump off her husband. Frank resists at first, but it's film noir, and of course, he acquiesces. Cora has a plan she read in a magazine article. Basically, Nick would have a fatal accident while taking a bath. However, the plan has Cora hitting Nick over the head when he isn't looking with a sock full of ball bearings. She will claim he hit his head while slipping in the tub. Will you be able to hear the bathtub water running from down here? Can't help hearing it. Besides, he always starts to sing when he turns the water on. We're going to sink or swim in how we tell that story. Well, I won't miss. Nick was taking a bath. You were outside wiping off the car. I was ironing in the kitchen. All of a sudden, I noticed some water dripping from the ceiling. Maybe we'd better save it. Don't change a word of it. We've got it all set, and I know it backwards. All right, all right. Well, make sure he's in the tub when you go in. and Just say you came in to get some clean towels. And then, when he's not looking, yet. And I lock the door and make sure the water is still running. I step out the window, down the step ladder. Be sure you put the step ladder back in the shed. If anybody sees that step ladder, we're sunk. And don't you dare move one inch away from that car in case anyone comes along. Don't worry, if I give you the signal, on the horn, you call everything off pronto. But nobody ever stops here when all the lights are out in front. Cora, maybe it would be better if, if I did it. Oh, we've settled that a dozen times. If I go in there, he won't pay any attention to me. Frank waits outside near the service station. He's waiting for Cora to commit the deed. However, just as Cora is about to hit Nick, a cat gets tangled in the power lines near the house and causes a power outage. Now, Cora manages to hit Nick over the head, but she has no idea if she killed him. Now, you never actually see any of Cora's actions. Everything is shot from Frank's perspective outside. As it turns out, she knocked Nick out but didn't kill him. Frank and Cora call an ambulance, and Nick is rushed to the hospital. While Nick is touch and go in the hospital, the police and DA question Frank and Cora about what happened. As expected, the police and DA are very suspicious about what caused his injuries. After Cora and Frank leave the hospital the next day, the DA and police arrive at the diner to check out the blown fuse box. They find the dead cat who caused the power surge and the outage, 
and chalk it up to just a weird coincidence. And then they leave things as that, for now. Watch your step now. Business as usual, and don't weaken it. Yeah. That's right, remember? Sure. We were looking at her. She must have walked off that ladder right onto the bare wire. Boy, those fuses blew out like a cannon. Cats are poor dumb things. Yeah. They don't know anything about electricity. Killed her deader than a doornail. Yes, the cats did all right. Well, accidents can happen in the weirdest sort of ways. So long, laddie. I never saw a prettier cat. Killed her deader than a doornail. Frank. Easy, car, easy. And it was all my fault. Mine, too. No, no, it was all my fault. I was the one that thought it up, and you didn't want to. Next time I'll listen to you. Except there won't be any next time. Oh, never, never. Listen, baby. If Nick should should die, they'll know. They always find out. They guess it right just from habit. I guess I'm not even. Even I thought I was. Or else I wouldn't have been so so scared. I'm plenty scared too. When all the lights went out, I was just a little girl again. Afraid of the dark. But from now on, you'll be the brains of this outfit, and I'll work. I'll work so hard for this place, Frank. We can't make any plans till we find out about Nick. I got no. Both Cora and Frank are extremely relieved they dodged a bullet and vow to play it straight from here on out. Any more funny business and there's no way they would be able to shake being suspects. The hospital calls Cora and tells her that Nick will be kept for a week at the hospital but is expected to make a full recovery. The week spent alone for Cora and Frank is a happy one for both of them. 
It's like a vacation for them to be together. But once the week is up and it's time for Nick to come home, Frank couldn't take not being able to be with Cora and decides it's best to leave town without saying goodbye. Frank works at a wholesale market outside of Los Angeles to make ends meet for a few weeks. Of course, one day while working at the market, Nick runs into Frank and makes him come back to the diner. Cora is shocked to see Frank again, and we're not sure if she's happy or upset that he's back. That night after dinner, Nick tells Frank and Cora a shocking surprise. He's going to sell the diner and the service station. This news greatly upsets Cora, who wanted nothing more than to run the place herself. This means she'll lose what she always wanted. And also, she's going to be stuck with Nick, living at Nick's sister's house in northern Canada. Nick wants Cora to take care of his invalid sister. The location of the diner is going to be redeveloped into an expanded highway, and Nick was offered big money for the location, and he wants to sell. Nick simply won't listen to Cora's insistence about keeping the place, and he has his mind made up to sell the place. Cora is infuriated with Nick's decision, and to make matters worse, Frank is back in town. Frank tries to console Cora, but she works her femme fatale magic again, and Frank again agrees to bump off old Nick. <laughs> the power of a beautiful woman. This time the plan is to get Nick good and liquored up and have him drive drunk again. He'd be so intoxicated that he'll just drive right off a cliff. However, he wouldn't be driving. Cora would be behind the wheel to stage the crash. And then Frank would hit Nick over the head as the fatal blow. As a stroke of luck, the district attorney Sackett arrives at closing time at the filling station for some air in his tires. He sees a dr very drunk Nick and Frank acting like he's drunk. And Frank Mock argues with Nick about who will do the driving. Cora then tells them that neither of them will drive. They can use this backstory to show that the two of them were drunk and eventually one of them got behind the wheel. No, no, Cora. You keep straight on. Well, I've always wanted to see Malibu Lake, and it's only a few miles to the other road. Okay. Say, Cora, look what you're doing. This is the worst piece of road in Los Angeles County. There we are. I must leave there is a tavern in the town, in the town. Look at that cage. She's boiling over. You're going to ruin this car, Mrs. Smith. Well, do you think I'd better pull over and let it cool off? Sure, for pull over and stop. we got to save this little bastard to take us to Canada. Hey, Nick, uh, what happened to your voice? We're going pretty good, huh? <clears throat> me, 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 and uh, there is a tavern in the town, in the town, where my two lovely... <clears throat> I gotta go. Nick! Hey, Nick! Nick! Come on, back in the car. For I must leave you, lovely. Departing, leave me. Listen. Well, for I must leave you, do not. Yeah, it's an echo, yeah. Sure, it's an echo. Come on, let's go back in the car. It's a wonderful echo. Yeah, it's a swell echo. It's a wonderful echo. It's the best echo I ever heard. Quarter, there, there's an echo out there. Listen. 
Which is best, me or the echo? Oh, the echo can't take your high note, Nick. <laughs> Sorry, hey, listen. mess ourselves up so we can prove we've been in the accident, too. Right. Come on. It's hardly smashed up at all. It didn't go down far enough. Look, Frank, a car's coming. Can they see us? I don't think so. We haven't got a mark on us, but it's too late. You better get up there and start yelling for help. I'll get the car down the rest of the way somehow. So while attempting to push the car further down the mountains, Frank gets trapped in the car, and it actually tumbles down the mountain. As it turns out, the DA was following them up the mountain and found Cora. An ambulance takes Frank and Nick to the hospital. So, what happens next? Did Cora and Frank get away with it? Was Nick actually killed? The final hour is suspense-thrilled and full of twists, and all of the questions will be answered. And the twist at the end is especially terrific. This is one of the most classic film noirs ever made, and it's really a must-watch if you're a fan of classic films. Now, the other great part about this movie is that it's so full of foreshadowing hints that you will likely only pick it up from repeat viewings. And you really couldn't get two better actors than Lana Turner and John Garfield to play their roles. There's only one character that appears in the second half of the film, and it's played by the great Hume Cronin. He absolutely steals the show in many ways, but if I tell you about his character, it will just give away key plot points. So I'm telling you, just see the movie. All right, some fun facts. This was Lana Turner's favorite film role, and the writer of the original novel, James M. Cain, felt that she was the perfect actress to play the role of Cora. Cain was so impressed with Lana Turner's performance, he presented her with a leather-bound copy of the book, and it was inscribed, For my dear Lana, thank you for giving a performance that was even finer than I expected. Joel McRae turned down the role of Frank, and Gregory Peck was considered before John Garfield was borrowed from Warner Brothers. Lana Turner supposedly said, couldn't they at least hire someone attractive? <laughs> when she found out it was Garfield playing opposite of her. Now, the onset sexual tension between Garfield and Turner was clear to all involved with the film. The first day together, he called out to her, hey Lana, how about a little quickie? To which she replied, you bastard. Garfield and Turner had a brief affair, but realized that whatever was happening on screen, off screen, they just had no sexual chemistry together. They remained friends nonetheless. Now, the original working title of this film was Barbecue. What a horrible title. By the way, you do find out what the meaning of the actual title, The Postman Always Rings Twice. You find this out at the end of the film, so see it. All right, I do have a radio adaptation of this film, and it was from the Screen Guild players from June 16, 1947. It's definitely different than the movie because there are tons of plot points in the film that just they couldn't add to the radio. But you will still get a chance to hear, the, you know, the main plot and some some nice dialogue. So that's good. 
But again, just see this film. It is one of the best classic films ever made. And I will be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. The Postman Always Rings Twice, based on the famous novel by James M. Cain. It stars Lana Turner as Corliss Smith and John Garfield as Frank Chambers. The Lady Esther Screen Guild players in The Postman Always Rings Twice. I mean, you can see one on any road in America. An old wooden house that had been remodeled, a lunchroom added in on the front, and a gasoline pump out in the yard. A sign was hanging on the pump, man wanted. So I opened the door and walked in. She was standing there near the counter, dressed all in white, white and cool on that hot afternoon, and looking at me as if I was dirt. She didn't fool me, though. Not even that. She was dynamite and a cake of ice. I knew it. And she knew it. She knew I knew it. And when she found she couldn't stand me down... Something you want? Not a thing. I just work here. Oh, since when? Since you asked. Well, the best way not to be working here is to try and be funny. Just remember that, Mr. Smart Guy. She was the boss's wife. Her name was Cora. Cora Smith. And every chance she got, she showed me she didn't like me. A lot. I knew I had to take it slow and easy, so I just stuck to my job and tried to get in solid with the boss. That part was a cinch. The poor guy had had so much trouble with help. By the end of the week, we were just like pals. Oh, go ahead, Frank. Have some wine. We got to celebrate tonight. <laughs> you're the boss, Nick. Hey, Cora, some wine for you? No, thanks. Oh, you're the one should be celebrating. You've been wanting that neon sign for two years. Frank, you ever see a finer sign than that? I never have. Honest, the way she kept begging for that sign, you think it was the most... Nick. Nick, why don't you play something on the guitar? Yeah, why don't you, Nick? Well, sure. Maybe Cora will do a little dance for us. She's a wonderful dancer. Uh, no, I, I always feel silly dancing alone. Put on a record, Nick, and I'll dance with you. Oh, listen to her, Frank. I keep telling her I'm like a lot of smart men. My brains are not in my feet. <laughs> hey, come on, Cora. Uh, how about me dancing with Mrs. Smith? Well, I, I don't feel... Why not? Go ahead, Cora. I like to watch dancing. That was the first time I ever had her in my arms. Right under Nick's nose. I didn't say a thing, and neither did she. But I guess we both knew. Then all of a sudden, she pulled away. <sighs> oh, that's enough, Nick. Save your strength. Oh, but, Cora, you dance so nice together. Yeah, well, it's too hot to dance. I think I'll drive down to the beach for a swim. Oh, that's a good idea. You haven't been out of this place for a month. I'll go get my things. I won't be long. Say, Nick, uh, why don't we all go down for a swim? Well, I don't swim very well, and, and the undertow's pretty strong. You mind if I ride down in the car with her? Well, not if she doesn't. Thanks. Say, if that undertow's so strong, I'm going to stay close to shore. <laughs> why you had to come along. You haven't even been near the water. I know. I promised Nick. Promised him what? That I'd stay close to shore. Tell me something. 
How did you ever come to marry him? That's none of your business. No need to get sore. You come from this part of California? No. Where then? Don't laugh. Iowa. Why the don't laugh? Oh, that tired old joke everybody in Southern California is supposed to come from Iowa. Did you uh, come here with Nick? No, I, I only met Nick four years ago. And the next question you asked before. Maybe I knew the answer when I asked. Oh, sure. You've got it all figured out. A smart little Jenny marries herself into a nice, steady business. Well, let me tell you something, Mr. Smarty Pants. When I married Nick, he only had a couple of hundred dollars. Starting the Twin Oaks was my idea. And if it's making nice money by now, it's as much me as Nick. That wasn't what I meant. Well, the rest is still none of your business. Okay. Your life sounds a little dull to me. <laughs> to you, it would. From what Nick tells me about your ideas. What's wrong with my ideas? To have my fun now, not when I'm old and rich and retired? Oh, rich and retired. I think you'll end up a first-rate tramp. I don't think you think that at all. Come on. Let's go back. I wouldn't want Nick getting any ideas. Listen, Nick hasn't any reason to get ideas. I know he hasn't. Yet. Well, I... I think we'd better be getting on home. Wait a minute. All right. I kissed you. Nick's got his reason. Now what? Just what I told you. We're going home. All the way home, all the next morning, she wouldn't even talk to me. But I had a feeling it wasn't just because she was mad. So I waited till Nick had started the town, and then I walked into the kitchen. Cora. Get out of here. Are you crazy? Where's Nick? He just had a brainstorm and drove into L.A. He thinks the laundry service is cheating him. Cora, honey. No, no. No, wait, Frank. Please. I want to tell you something. What? Frank, about that question. What question? Why I married Nick. Well, my answer is that Nick came along at the right time with a wedding ring. Yeah. A wedding ring was the first thing he mentioned. And, of course, you liked that. You'd always had to fight off a lot of guys. A lot of guys. <laughs> All the guys. I don't especially like the way I look sometimes, but, but I never met a man since I was 14 who didn't want to give me an argument about it. So by the time Nick came along, you were ready to marry anybody who owned a gold watch. Well, I I told him I didn't love him. I told him... And he said that would come in time, but it didn't. Oh, honest, I meant to stick by him. And, and, and so, so you married him and retired the undefeated champ. Not 100% undefeated. Not now. What's that? Sounds like somebody trying to get in. Was the lunch room door locked? Yeah. I must have locked it. Almost ever since I saw you. Frank, I, I'll leave a note for Nick. But where'll we go? How do I know? Depends on which way we can thumb a ride. Mm, there goes another one whizzing by. Don't worry, Cora. We'll get a lift. But when? Oh, I don't know which is more tired, my thumb or my arches. Now, wait a minute. Let's take time out. Here, sit on the bed. Now, let's have it. What's on your mind? Frank, if I divorce Nick, he'll never give me a nickel. 
So keep the Twin Oaks and everything. Why do we care? Well, maybe it doesn't mean anything to you, but I want to be somebody. And the Twin Oaks is mine. If I walk out like this, I'll lose all I put in it. And I'll never be anybody. Oh, I love you, Frank. And I want you. But not this way. Not starting off like a couple of tramps. I'm going back. Okay. You're the boss. Oh, please understand it. It's only because I love you and... Frank! What's the matter now? The note I left for Nick. Oh, if he gets home before we do. Well, where'd you leave it? In the cash register. The first place you look. Come on. Let's get back there. coming up the road. Oh, and I'd better put that bag away. Well, wait a minute. Why is he driving like that from side to side? We must have been celebrating again. He's drunk. He's either drunk or he's crazy. Hey, look out. Look, look out, that truck. <laughs> Boy, that was close. I wish he'd get into that car someday and get plastered and drive off a cliff. Frank, you don't mean that. You were joking. Sure. Sure, I was joking. Of course you were joking. I couldn't get to sleep that night. Maybe I was afraid of sleep. Maybe I was afraid I'd dream. And so I, I went outside and I lit a cigarette and I walked around. I, I noticed the light was on in Nick and Cora's room. Then almost without knowing it, I was standing near their window. That's how I happened to hear what I did. Oh, but Cora, there's something to celebrate, isn't it? If I sell the Twin Oaks at a big profit. But that's what I don't understand. We're making good money. Why sell out now? Oh, for one thing, so you can take it easy. We're going back to Michigan to live with my sister. Your sister? You never even told me you had a sister. Well, I didn't want to worry you. You see, she hasn't been well for the last few years. Sort of paralyzed. She needs us to take care of her. Oh, you mean she needs me. She needs a free nurse. Well, now, Cora, please. I won't do it, Nick. And I won't let you sell. Half of this place ought to be mine. More than half of it. All of it. And I'll stop you somehow. I don't think so, Cora. Remember when we got married, that little paper you signed? Well, that just gave you the right to rent this place for us. That's what I let you think. That paper was what they call a marriage settlement. Nick. Nick, you didn't do that to me. Why, you thief. You cheat, you liar. Well, after all, I'd only known you a couple of weeks. I had to protect that house back in Michigan. But since you don't care about my sister, that paper can cover the Twin Oaks, too. You're a smart friend. You'll think of a way. 
He never did anything to me. He sure did. Maybe he didn't know it, but he did it to you and me, to both of us. But don't you see, Frank, us, that's all that matters. You, you really love me that much? That much? Oh, I'm no good, Frank. I'm no good, but I love you. It's in the cards. Yeah. I guess it's in the cards. The second act of the Lady Esther Screengill play will follow in a moment. Now, a word. We didn't know how we were going to do it. We didn't have any plan. It was Nick himself who gave it to us. The following morning, he was feeling real good. Cora had made up with him, and he was bubbling over with ideas. Uh, this fellow who's buying the place, he wants me to meet him tomorrow morning in Santa Barbara. We can all drive up tonight and have a little celebration. What do you mean, we can all drive up? Where do I come in? Oh, well, I want you to meet him, Frank. I, I told him you'd manage the Twin Oaks for him. I gave you a pretty good recommendation. Oh, thanks. Well, he doesn't get the place until tomorrow. Anything we take in today is still ours. Come on, let's get out there and get to work. That's how she was all afternoon. Quiet, cold, deliberate. Until we had the plan all set and got ready to leave. Part of my job was to get Nick drunk. But I didn't have to try very hard. We started celebrating around 4 o'clock. By 7.30, it was getting dark, so we locked up the place and started out. Cora at the wheel, Nick and me in a bottle of wine in the back seat. Come on, Frank. Let's have a little harmony, huh? All right. There's a long, long trail of winding into the land of fire. Hey, Gloria. Gloria, you're making the wrong turn. No, I'm not. This takes us right by Lake Sherwood. I've always wanted to see it, Nick. Oh, well, sure. Why not? There's a long, long trail of... And that's how we were when we reached the top of the pass. Where the road is cut right from the side of the mountain. Nick was just having another drink when Cora stopped the car at the edge of the cliff. Hey, yeah, what's you stopping for, Cora? We got a long way to go. Well, the engine's overheated. I, I better let it cool off. Oh, say, that's right. Gotta save this little bus to take the mission. Hey, huh? Nick, how about another song? We, we're going pretty good before. Come oh, on. sure, sure. Just hold this bottle, Frank. I'll start us off. Oh, pack, pack up, up your troubles in your old kid's bag and smile, smile, smile. Yeah, I left it in high. Good, we can hold it right off. Frank, Frank, we did it. It'll be tough going from here. You sure you can go through it? Oh, after seeing that, I can go through with anything. You'll have to muss up your dress. Rip it up. I'll get down there and climb in the car, rough myself up. Yeah. And when you're sure I'm inside, you can head down the road and start yelling for help. Are you positive you can take it, Cora? Oh, yes, there's just one thing now. Us. Nothing else matters. The car stopped halfway down the cliff. Hung up on a little ledge. I scrambled down to it. Climbed in the back and pulled the door open. Cora started yelling up on the road. And then, all of a sudden, the car slid forward. It began to gain speed. Turned over twice. And then something hit me and everything went black. When I woke up, I... I was in the hospital. First, the doctor was there. And then the district attorney fellow named Sackett. He asked a lot of questions and wrote down everything I said. And then he opened the door and called to Cora. All right, Mr. Smith, you can see him now. Thank you. Hello, Frank. How are you? Uh, shaken up a little, Mrs. Smith. Oh, your arm? 
Well, the doctor says it isn't broken. Uh, how are you? I must get hurt by a miracle. That was a crazy stunt your husband pulled, Mrs. Smith. Reaching from the back, trying to grab the wheel. Yes, poor Nick. He was so drunk. Yeah. Well, I might as well get this report turned in. Chambers, you told the doctor you were driving? I was. Mrs. Smith told me that she was at the wheel. I was. How about that, Chambers? Uh, I don't know. I, well, it, it seemed to me that I was driving, but... Uh, well, I, I couldn't be sure. I mean... Well, I, I guess I'd been drinking a little, too. Yeah. I saw the chemist report on your blood. You keep drinking like that for a few more years, and your blood's going to be 90 proof. Well, I'm going to swear off that stuff right now. That's a very good idea. You wouldn't want another accident like this. Next time you might not get off so lucky. They all took it like that. Swallowed our story from start to finish. They brought me a lot of papers to sign, and then they checked me out of the hospital. And then Cora and I took the bus for home. All the way out, she never said one word. Just kept staring out of the window. But once we were back at the Twin Oaks again, and the door was locked, and we knew we were safe. Frank. Yes, Cora. Frank, are you sorry? Well, not exactly. I'm sorry, I just sort of feel as though... Cora, let's clear out of here. Let's go somewhere, anywhere. And give up this place? After what I've gone through to keep it? <laughs> oh, no, not in your life. What's the matter, Frank? Getting scared? Maybe I am. Almost any minute I expect to hear that guitar again. Or him singing the way... The way he was singing when I... Oh, you're just using that for an excuse. You want to go away because you still think it's fun to be a... A tramp. Oh, Cora, please. You've been trying to make a tramp out of me ever since you've known me. But you're not going to do it. I'm staying here. All right. I'll do whatever you say. And you know why. What do you mean I know what? Are you trying to say you're afraid of me? Afraid I might try to double-cross you? Go back to Sackett and try to pin the whole thing on you? Cora. Well, that's the truth of it. Oh. If you stay here, it's only because you're afraid to leave. That's not true. It is... Maybe that's why you won't let me go. You're afraid that maybe I might squeal. Maybe I am. All right, then. We're hooked. I guess maybe we are. But I won't feel so bad after we're married. Married? Well, there happens to be a law in this country, Frank. A, a husband and wife can't testify against each other. I think maybe we'll both feel safer that way. She didn't want to get married right away. She was afraid it might start people talking. So the next few weeks were pretty brutal. Her watching me, me watching her. Each of us scared of what the other might do. There were times I thought I couldn't stand it anymore. And then one evening she came to me. Frank, I think we'll get married tonight. Some little town down near the border. You bring out the car and I'll go get my things. Frank? Yes, Cora? Frank, before we're married... I want to know something and tell me the truth because I'm going to tell the truth to you. What do you want to know? During these weeks, sometimes, you must have planned to run away. Why didn't you? <laughs> Why didn't I? Because we're chained to each other. Ever since that night on the mountain, Cora, we were on top of a mountain. But it's been on top of us ever since that night. Is that the only reason you didn't go away? No. It was because of you and me. Don't say you love me now. The funny part is, I do. No. No, that's not love, Frank. When fear comes into it, it isn't love anymore. It's hate. Do you hate me? I don't know. And I've got to know. I've got to know the truth. Frank. Frank, will you do something for me? Then I'll know. Oh. 
Take me off to the beach swimming. That place we went the first time you kissed me. Well, that's a funny thing to... Oh, please. Please, Frank, don't ask any questions. Just take me down to the beach. And I promise you everything will be settled one way or the other. Before we come back. Well, if it means so much to you... Yes, you take the next road to the right. Don't you think we're out far enough? There's a riptide tonight. Yes. I think this ought to be far enough. <sighs> tired? Oh, yes. Very tired. How about you? Well, I'm still all right. I swim better than you, but I'm much yet stronger. Frank. Frank, this is what I meant. In the car. What? Well, if you don't trust me completely... If you don't believe I can never turn on you. If, oh. you. if you don't want me to go back with you, you, you don't have to. You can swim back by yourself. I'm too tired to make it. And nobody will ever know. Cora. Cora. <laughs> I didn't want to live without you. Oh, Frank. Don't say another word, honey. Just save your breath. I'll take you in. <laughs> Are you sure now? Mm, I'm sure. I'm sure I love you. I'm sure we're going to be happy. Almost as happy as if all this had come to us before Nick. That wasn't our luck, Cora, but we'll start out now. A brand new life. Yes, a brand new life. Let's kiss on that, huh? Oh, no, no, not while you're driving. Come on, no. honey. Come on. <laughs> no, when we get home, Frank, then there'll be kisses. Kisses with dreams. Kisses that come from life, not death. Oh, just one little one now. <laughs> Me. 
Thank you, John Garfield and Lana Turner for a most absorbing performance. It was a pleasure to be here, Mr. Bradley. We know how much this radio program contributes to the Motion Picture Relief Fund and its country house. But we all feel it's a great privilege to share in that work. Now, before we tell you about next week's show, here's a word from one of America's best-known beauty authorities, Lady Esther. Thank you, Miss. The Postman Always Wings Twice was produced and directed by Bill Lawrence, adapted by Harry Conman, and was presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of Living in a Big Way, starring Gene Kelly and Marie McDonald. Music on tonight's program was arranged and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. John Garfield will soon be seen in the Enterprise production Body and Soul. Lana Turner appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor musical Fiesta. This is Truman Bradley speaking for Lady Esther. Thank you and good night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.